Hello, and welcome to the Sasha Sessions, a Team USA podcast. I'm your host, Sasha Cohen, Olympic silver medalist in figure skating. Joining me this week is Rolf Potts. He's an author and a world traveler who popularized the concept of a vagabonding lifestyle in his travel writings. Welcome, Rolf. Thanks. It's good to talk to you, Sasha. So I was first introduced to you and your work through Tim Ferriss's podcast, and I am an avid traveler. I always want to give myself permission to travel more, and I feel like you blaze your own trail in terms of not only writing the book on vagabonding, but just the way that you approach travel as a lifestyle. And so I figured you'd be the one to answer my questions. Well, I'm happy to talk to you about it and happy to give you and your listeners some ideas. In your own words, are you a writer? Are you a traveler, an adventurer? How do you see yourself at this point? Uh, well, I'm all those things, I think. Professionally, I'm a writer, uh, and I mostly write about travel, but not just about travel. You know, I'm a journalist and an essayist as well. Uh, and then travel is a very important part of my life. And that was a decision I made a long time ago. And it's a decision that anyone can make. Uh, you know, I travel about half the year in a given year. But that doesn't mean that everybody who is interested in vagabonding has to commit to that kind of travel investment that really, it's it's dream and personally uh, specific, that if you dream of travel, you can. You just need to sort of arrange your life in such a way that you can allow yourself to travel. Where did this start? Because I know there's so many people that have grandiose ambitions of travel, and today we have such access to to blogs and information and Instagram, and we're always seeing beautiful sunsets in Bangkok or, you know, someone on an expedition in Antarctica. So we, it's very present. I think people haven't really thought about it in a concrete way, that it's real, it's practical, it's something that they can do, aside from maybe two weeks or a week a year on a vacation or perhaps when they retire. So I kind of want to get into who you are and how your life story unfolded in a way that set your life up where you spend maybe half your your time on the road. Well, I grew up in the middle of the country in Kansas, which is about as far as you can get from a foreign country in the United States. So I wasn't really predestined to travel, I think. And like most American kids, I grew up thinking, well, I'll get a job, I'll work hard, and then when I'm old and I've earned my retirement, then I can travel the world. And I think that's still an attitude uh, that is fairly prevalent, even though you know blogs and other social media are making travels feel more accessible. But when I was quite young, my grandfather is a Kansas farmer, and he was about to his retirement age. And if anybody had re- earned his retirement, it was my grandfather. Uh, but my grandmother, his wife got Alzheimer's disease and he sort of had to stick close to home. Not that he was necessarily a big travel dreamer, but basically the time of his life that he was supposed to enjoy, he couldn't. So I realized as a teenager that if I really wanted to travel, if I really want to do any kind of thing that I'd been dreaming about, I had to make it happen now. And then when I was quite young, actually, uh, right after university, I started traveling. I started in North America. And just by allowing myself to travel in a non-vacation way, sort of uh, in a slow, deliberate, open-ended way, I realized how much cheaper it is, how much easier it is, and how much safer it is. And all the fears that I had going in sort of melted away. And uh, I'm still traveling to this day. That was about 25 years ago, and still a a good portion of each year is given over to some iteration of travel. 
And do you think your personality or you have a disposition where you are more attracted to using travel as a way of life versus an escape from life? I think so. And I think that's tied into how I first embraced travel is that I really thought when I was 23 years old and vagabonding for the first time, I thought it would be the last time I was going to go vagabonding. I thought it was going to be so weird and and expensive and serious that I could never do it again. And so it was an escape to begin with. And then ever since then, I've just continued to embrace this idea that travel need not be an escape from your life, but sort of a way to deepen and enrich your life. And that's not just specific to my personality. I think sometimes we we are given this idea in America, maybe everywhere, but especially in America, that travel is a product that you buy. Uh, when in fact, if you just think of it as something that you give to yourself, uh, something that you can embrace and and really make a part of your life instead of an escape from your life, then um, it's just so much richer and more rewarding. For people that haven't read your book or aren't familiar with vagabonding or what is this concept or maybe have heard it referred to loosely in a Kerouac novel. What is vagabonding and and why are you the one that seem seemingly has put it on the map for this generation? Well, I guess I put it on the map for this generation because of my book, Vagabonding, which was embraced uh, by a lot of people. I think sort of of the internet slash information era, which even that phrase sounds old now. I guess now we're in the social media era. And Tim Ferriss, uh, who you discovered me through, is is one of those people. And so, I, I don't know, I, I feel sort of lucky and blessed to be the guy speaking for this because I travel is something I love so much. In the book, I define vagabonding as taking time off from your normal life. And there's not a set time. It doesn't have to be a like a gap year. It's just whatever you can spare, be it six weeks or or six months or or two years, to travel in an in-depth and earnest way, not really a vacation that's sort of taking time off from work, but really embracing travel in a way that connects with your dreams and your desires to really get to know the world a little bit better and to really broaden your life in ways that you could never guess before you left home. I love the idea of travel as a metaphor for other life situations we face. I see it as a way to challenge traditional models and expectations of what society views as success and what we've been taught to value. And I think we're also in an age right now where travel is its own thing, but it's also somewhat taken on this combined energy with this quest for self and this quest for meaning. And and in your book, there's a lovely quote where you, you talk about travel as a form of spiritual asceticism. And that travel compels you to discover your spiritual side by simple elimination. Without all the rituals, routines, and positions that give your life meaning at home, you are forced to look for meaning within yourself. And if travel helps you find yourself, it's because it leaves you with nothing to hide behind. This is such an amazing quote. I think we're not even really entirely conscious of how much our life is defined by what we come up against in our everyday lives, like our expectations from our parents, from American society, from our schools, from the media. And as soon as you leave your country, the values change and the norms change. And all of a sudden, you can't define yourself against that backdrop. And so I'm curious, like, how you came to that realization, if that was early in your travels. And it just, to me, that was such a powerful quote. I think my early overseas travel really drove that home. 
just the idea that you can intellectualize what a travel experience or another country is going to be like, but it's not until you're there and you're forced to confront it and come to terms with it that you realize how much travel has to teach you. And this is something that that is maybe not as easy as it used to be because now you can take your smartphone with you and the second you're on the cusp of an experience that demands your full attention, you can text your mom and say, look, look at this amazing thing that I just saw, right? And so I don't, I don't want to disparage technology and how it makes you travel, but I think that the best parts of travel are really when travel and the experience of other places really throws you off all the assumptions, habits, routines, and comfort that define your life back home. And there's a reason why those things serve you at home. But if you don't allow yourself to stay open to those things on the road, then you're going to sell yourself short because, and, and again, this is, a, this is a problem that Americans have, I think, quite a bit because America is such a big country and, there's so, and it's so wealthy and there's so many Americans that it's easy to forget that there's a conversation going on in the world that doesn't really involve us. And it's important to, to keep an ear out for that conversation. And, and listen, especially in the social media age, our, our opinions and our observations seem to count for maybe more than they're worth. And I think a really key gift of travel is the ability to listen and to really understand people who you might not be familiar with, um, but you're trying to get to know. And, and the best way to do that is just to be still and listen a little bit and actualize something that's sort of at the core of all of this that I touch on in the book, which is becoming rich in time, you know, that realizing that you don't have to hurry through life, you don't have to see your wealth as something you own that you can fit into your house, but the idea that how you spend your hours is how you spend your life and seeing time as your truest form of wealth is really the best gift you can give yourself. I love that concept of time wealth because, you know, I think when you you go way back to Seneca and he will write about men and their daily activities and how they dedicate the best years of their lives to professions that they may not like or enjoy and that they they save the scraps of their life, the very end, the very retirement, hoping that they have the health and the wealth to have space for themselves. And I think the the notion of success and making it in the world has really changed to, to and I know I'm sure a consumer society is a big part of that. And we kind of don't even question it anymore. And so when you you talk about time wealth, it seems like such a foreign concept, but then it just, it makes complete sense. And we are apparently more efficient than we've ever been, but we have less time than we've ever had. And I think everyone feels a little bit frenetic when you have 12 windows open on your your search browser, your TV on, your your iPad, your iPhone. You have so many devices, so many things constantly demanding your attention. And, and we just never have time for ourselves. And I think we don't really know how to make it because everyone else is kind of caught up on the same treadmill. And so it doesn't. we don't even know that there's a way to turn off the treadmill or to get off for a little while. And, and when did you first come head to head with this notion of of time wealth versus material wealth or learning to value one over the other? Well, I think it comes into some of what you were just talking about, like uh, reading the Stoics, uh, you know, or, or, or reading their Bible. You know, there's, there's ideas that are pretty ancient. The idea of time wealth or even the idea that material riches aren't going to make you happy is not something that was invented in the last 10 years. It's a very old concept. It's just we haven't listened very carefully, right? Um, Seneca and the Stoics had 
such common sense and useful advice in regards to things like time wealth, but we just haven't actualized it. Um, and it's funny, you were talking about being a fan of, of Tim Ferriss. He and I talked about, or he complained to me about how hard it is to organize a bunch of billionaires because billionaires may have a billion dollars, but they don't have time to the same extent that we do. And so I think that when you realize that time is your truest form of wealth, that really means that anybody can be rich. It's just so much easier to create um, areas of time within your life. Um, but like you said, there's ways to nickel and dime your time into nothing. Um, and part of that is with the, with the phone that's in your pocket and the habits that you get yourself into, which again is another reason why time ha or why travel has good lessons to teach about how we spend our time because suddenly, we're less likely to be, hopefully, looking down at our phone every 10 minutes for whatever is, air quotes, happening next. Because in travel, everything is a surprise and serendipity is, is right there every day if you allow it to be. And thus, travel can teach you how easy it is to cheat yourself out of your time wealth in little nickel and dime ways or in, in giant billionaire ways. And then also how easy it is to actualize your time wealth because sometimes people who travel across the world for, to vagabond for the first time, it's not that complicated. They'll be watching a sunset in Myanmar and they'll be so happy that they're looking at a sunset. Well, we have a sunset every day, we just don't look at it, right? But sometimes it's seeing it in Myanmar, it's seeing it in Prague, it's seeing it in Mozambique that reminds us what a blessing the cycle of every day is, and again, the, the wealth of our days on earth is. And for people who haven't really traveled, perhaps they haven't had the opportunity or perhaps not really the interest, what would you say the most impactful aspects of travel are in terms of how it, how it changes you? You know, I think we've talked about this one element of reflecting and seeing yourself and your beliefs against the backdrop of a different society, which can make you challenge everything you think is normal or how things should be. But I just had a tremendous privilege to travel and compete around the world, but everything was very focused on a goal. And that's something I'd love to talk about later is this notion of traveling and wandering and serendipity versus the goals that can tend to take over your life and, and perhaps not allow you to have that space. But for me, whether I was getting to really see the sights, I was always meeting people from all different uh, parts of the world who thought about things very differently, who had very different life experiences, and we were all brought together through sport or through the Olympics, which was incredibly eye-opening. But I, you know, I do have some friends at home that just don't have the interest in travel. They're like, oh, it's too far. I don't want to spend 16 hours on a plane. I hate jet lag. And I always try to say this, this will change you. This is the greatest joy of my year when I get to spend a whole day on an airplane, not that exact moment, but when I arrive in Myanmar or in a different country uh, in Sri Lanka and you're just kind of blown away and you have no idea what to expect and you're just completely open. It's like being a child again and everything's new. Well, I think that people who say they don't like the idea of travel or they don't want to travel, if that's really, really true, then that's fine. You don't have to travel. But I think oftentimes that's a fear response. And there's so many levels to that fear response. Um, some people uh, attach that to not having enough money. Well, you know, it, you can actually live for cheaper in some parts of the world than in a major city in the United States. Some people attach that fear to danger, 
But actually, statistically, international cities are no more statistically dangerous than American cities. And so I think if you have friends that don't think they want to travel, or even to some of your listeners who think maybe they don't want to travel, really unpack that idea of why don't you want to travel? Because we live in American society, which in many ways at some levels, urges us that travel is irresponsible or travel is dangerous or travel is expensive. Um, yet, and I think the Olympics are a great example of, of how this works because there's the, the Olympic Village and the idea that you mix in with other people and you're having these conversations. Well, guess what? You don't have to qualify for the Olympics to have that experience 365 days a year. You can go to another country. And I think one of the mind-blowing things about travel is how open and curious people are everywhere in the world. Um, and not just in, uh, in Olympic villages, you know, I'm an introvert by nature, but I go overseas and the simplest of conversations and encounters become so rewarding for me. You know, I, I was in Indonesia um, about a year ago and it used to be that you um, you would bring your camera as a traveler and take pictures of local people. Well, now everybody has smartphones, even in Indonesia. I posed for so many pictures because people thought it was kind of cool to meet an American guy. And so regardless of what you've heard about places, like I know you have a, a connection to Russia. Do you, do you go there very much? I went when I was competing. So I competed in St. Petersburg and Moscow. My family's actually, my mom came from Odessa, which Oh, okay. okay. Now Ukraine, but I'd, I've only been in the winter, so I think I owe it a visit in the summer. Well, any time of you, I went to Russia in the winter once, and so few Americans in particular go to Russia in the winter. They thought I was German, and then when I found out I was American, it was like I was a celebrity or something, you know? And there's sort of this sour idea of how Russians think of us, but I had the greatest time in, in Russia, and really, I've had so many great understated Olympic village type experiences of just being friendly and, and sharing a drink or a meal or a conversation with someone in ways that have just been so life enriching. And so I think there's an extent to which travel has been tied into status. It's been tied into those, these days, into those Instagram accounts where somebody looks really super sexy on a beach with no other people on the, the far side of the world. Those moments are great, but there's something particularly satisfying about these smaller moments. I was talking about the sunset type moments, but also these just like simply sharing a meal or a drink with a normal person on the other side of the world um, can help you see yourself and the rest of the world in a whole, whole new well, way. And it can help you take that perspective home um, and, and really make your own travel experiences be in conversation with your life at home. Uh, in a way that's that's good for everybody. Um, I know I know I've, I sound like a travel evangelist, but uh, I after all these years of doing it, I still really love it, and it still surprises me. And for people that maybe feel like they have a career they're trying to develop, how do you think about trade offs? Is something is travel some you know kind of like a rite of passage that everyone can have at some point? Uh, I know for me, it wasn't really something that I thought about outside of traveling to compete until I retired. And then it was 
fit in between semesters at school and then now with a traditional job. It's Maybe it's just something as simple as giving yourself permission to not be on the same track as the rest of the world. But I'm curious if you had that, that internal struggle, that there was a certain career path you wanted to follow that conflicted with vagabonding lifestyle, or if that's just not how you desired to experience the world. Well, I was lucky enough that I started vagabonding at an age and mixing it with more temporary type work, including teaching English overseas, that I was never really beholden to those tough decisions that can come up. But, you know, when I first wrote Vagabonding, which has been more than 15 years ago now, um, people would read it. I I said in the book that, you know, if you want some time off from work, ask your boss. Say, boss, I want six months off, and, and guess what? I'll learn some amazing new things. Or... If you don't have a job yet, put travel on your resume. And 15 years ago, people were just so confused by that. They just thought it would destroy their career. Actually, now we have the concept of digital nomads. We live in a much more global era where actually having overseas experience is literally good for your resume. It makes you more employable. Um, and I always, I always joke that, you know, as long as you don't spend your whole time on the beach drinking beer, but if you do spend a, a good chunk of your time on the, on the beach drinking beer, maybe you should put, you know, like other skills on your resume. So this is a serious consideration and one shouldn't be reckless, but one should not be over conservative too, that sometimes you'll be surprised when your boss when you can take this to your boss and your boss say, will say, sure, yeah, unpaid sabbatical, six months, yeah, I can do that. Or, and I talk about this in the book, sort of constructive quitting. You know, when you take, if you're, if you're frustrated in your job, well, take time off. Don't, don't burn any bridges, but take time off. Travel the world. Find out what you love. Deepen your skills. And again, we see travel as sort of this, air quotes, tourist-type experience, but that doesn't mean that it is not the best form of education ever if you allow it to be not just languages, but but other skills, and then taking your skills on the road uh, in a digital nomad type way. And a digital nomad is just someone who, who has a portable skill that they take with them as they travel so that they're making money from the road. Um, so I think this is another fear that keeps people from traveling along with money and danger. It's, it's, it's the idea that somehow they're going to be less stable professionally if they integrate a big trip into their life. And after all these years, I haven't seen much evidence of people ruining their professional life from traveling. Um, that really, it's the, it's the attitude and the spirit you take to travel and take back from travel that can make or break the role it plays in your professional life. Um, yeah, and and again, the the anti sabbatical. You 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 were lucky, I guess, in that you got to retire. Uh, early. And of course, that doesn't mean you can just um, drink Mai Tais on, on the beach for the rest of your life, but it forces you to actively think about what's next. And we, we sort of live in a post-industrial age where even if you wanted to have the same job for 40 years, it's just less common to have that. And so if you remember that travel is a way that you can let your life breathe between contracts or jobs and a way that you can deepen your skills and and possibilities for jobs, then travel just makes sense. It doesn't need to be something you need to apologize for. It can be something that you can strategically implement to make your professional life more more meaningful and more advantageous. I I think I've done a pretty good job of of traveling, but certainly not in the the time chunks that you have. So that's a, a future goal of mine too. To not let excuses or fear of the unknown or a comfort zone creep in. I wanted to ask you and go back a little bit to technology because I think this is something that we're seeing completely change travel, but also 
completely change our lives at home. And whether you're a person that travels or doesn't travel, I feel like we're not really that present anymore because of social media and almost this this paradox that if you're not posting, you don't exist. And it's it's whether you you did something something amazing happened, you know, in your hometown or you traveled halfway around the world. It's almost if you didn't post it, it didn't happen. And you're not visible to this world. And this this world is existing virtually and on screens. And so it's certainly changed travel as far as being able to connect easily at home versus the, the days where there, there was uh, no Wi-Fi and sometimes you'd make a long-distance phone call. So I, I want to understand how that's really changed travel for you and and if you struggle with that same tension uh, because obviously your career is is a public one. You know, you've, you've written a book and you you teach and so your life and your travels are part of your your toolkit. So how do you how do you maintain that balance of being present versus being visible? I, I maintain it poorly, and I guess I, that's giving your listeners welcome pres- to everyone else's <laughs> life. Right. Well, that so if if anybody feels angsty that they're not balancing it very well, then I have the same problem. And you know, it's funny when I was traveling in Sumatra this winter, I was very good about posting to Instagram. I, I just decided that that was going to be where I told my story of my Sumatra trip. Uh, and then when I went to Sri Lanka, I didn't post as much, in part because I was just tired of spending all my time preparing Instagram posts. And so people literally said, yeah, why'd you stop traveling? And it's like, yeah, actually, I didn't stop traveling. I, I sort of started traveling, not not to sell Sumatra short, but being independent of Instagram allowed me to, to throw myself into places like Sri Lanka and points beyond uh, in a way that I couldn't in Sumatra. Um, and from the beginning, you know, I've been a, a travel writer now for a generation. And so that brings up the sort of uh, the, the, the danger of the, the get off my lawn hot take of the guy who's been, been doing this for a long time. And so, so literally, I've sort of been encouraging people to, to strike a balance, even in vagabonding, uh, between technology. But that, that doesn't mean that it's easier for me to do. But what it does allow me to do is get a perspective of what things were like before you had the smartphone in, the, in your pocket. And, and, and really, in a way, having a smartphone in your pocket in such a way that you're looking at it every 10 minutes means that you haven't really left home. Like a 40% of you has not left home. And so it's really important to discipline yourself to get out of those home habits. You know, um, You're not sleeping in your bed. You're not seeing your friends all the time. But if you're constantly going back to your phone in the same pattern that you do at home, then you're not really where you are. Um, and so it, it requires some discipline. You know, um, one thing that I did uh, it, when I was in Sumatra is that I, I didn't buy a data plan. I didn't buy a cell plan when I was there. So if I was going to use my phone, I had to go to where there was Wi-Fi. Uh, and so I guess that's just giving people permission to throw obstacles in the way of their technology because it can be so efficient and it can be so... Um, maximized and made so efficient as travel that it, in a way, it sort of ceases to become travel in in the fun way that it can be. And you're sort of in those same habits that you are back home. So keeping in mind that I have not perfected this, it's a good thing to challenge yourself to just leave the cell phone in, in the apartment or in the, uh, in the hotel and just see what's in front of your eyes. Because literally 20 years ago, 
You didn't have a phone that told you the way of the restaurant. You asked somebody in the street in, in Bangkok or Kinshasa or wherever you are, where, where's a good place to eat? Guess what? You can still do that. You know, like all those tools that didn't exist until the last few years um, uh, or actually the technological tools that didn't exist until the last few years are so new that humans traveled for five to 10,000 years just using each other, just using advice. And that's part of the fun. And I gently encourage everybody to throw themselves into that primitive mode of pre-technological travel. And are you seeing any kind of lashback within the travel community of having a sacred space for travel or, or everyone has that need to feel connected and to document? I have hopes that in the future that there'll be some kind of rational consensus that takes place and there's a little bit more separation versus like, oh, you're not traveling, you know, you must just kind of be bored at home versus this need for everyone else to think you're having fun versus you actually having fun. Yeah. Well, part of the problem is that even as travelers, our conversation about this is now happening on social media, right? So, so even as we complain about technology, we're using technology to complain about it. Um, but it goes into those existential ideas, you know, on your deathbed, are you going to think, wow, that picture I took in Sumatra got 700 likes and that's going to put a smile on my face on my deathbed. Well, probably not, you know, probably in, in, in sooner than you think the idea of 700 likes on Instagram is going to seem absurd. And so, you know, 2010s, you know, uh, compared to what the new thing is. And so I think those human connections will always be the prize of travel. Those lessons that you learn, those hard lessons that you learn about yourself will always be the prize of travel. And I think the conversation within travel communities um, can, can sort of go both ways. That the People embrace technology because it makes travel more accessible and more easier. But at the same time, it, it, it traps us in front of screens. You know, Again, we're on the far side of the world, but we're, we're staring at the same black mirror that we stared at when we were back home. And so I really think this isn't something that I can give a prescription for and then everybody can sort of buy the app, you know, buy the, <laughs> the, the Rolf Potts app that helps them think about it. But it just has to be part of the conversation. And I think um, being honest about it, um, as it sounds like you're, you are, about how, how can I really make myself independent of these habits that I had back home, including technological ones? How can I use technology to deepen my experience of a place, but yet keep myself vulnerable to those very simple human moments that has always made travel wonderful? Um, yeah, so I'll be struggling with that 10 years from now. Um, and as long as we're still talking about it and honest about it, I think that's the best we can do. Well, I'll, I'll keep you posted if I find the answer. <laughs> all right, we'll, we'll do the Sasha app. Yeah. You've traveled all over the world. You've been to 70 or 80 countries. And I'm curious what country or what few countries had the most profound impact on you for, for whatever reason, whether it was a certain experience there or the culture or just something that you you totally didn't expect going in. That's a good question because I think sometimes – the temptation is to talk about your favorite country. You know, like I'm really fond of Central Asia. You can do Asia. that like, too. <laughs> right. You can do that too. Right. Well, like I'm, I'm fond of places that sort of remind me of my own home on steroids. I'm from, I'm from the American Great Plains. And so I love Mongolia, which is just a fantastically beautiful grasslands. It's a place where half the population when I was there was still literally nomadic. There's places like that. 
uh, as well in, in Argentina and in Africa and other parts of the world. But what really affected me was actually going to South Korea to teach English in my mid-20s. And it wasn't sort of a cue the inspirational music run in slow motion through a foreign streets thing. I realized that Korea was sort of more workaholic than the U.S. is. And that Korea was a country that was not individualistic like the U.S. is. It's, it's a more, it has more of a communal way of thinking. And in a way, individualism is sort of a pejorative word in Korea. And I didn't know that. And so the lessons I learned in Korea just by messing up and just by being completely vulnerable and making a mistake every day have made the experience of that country really special for me. And I think sometimes when we become, air quotes, expert travelers, which is sort of fictional because being a traveler by definition means you're a, a stranger in a strange place and you're, you should always be vulnerable. But I think I was able to be vulnerable by default in Korea in a way I can't be anymore. And so that's a place that's very special to me because I learned sometimes the best lessons of travel can be the hard lessons. And I'd like to think I didn't offend too many Koreans by, by saying the wrong thing or doing the wrong thing, but I just realized how deep and wonderful cultural culture can be. And Korea is where I learned at, at, a, at a good age, you know, your, your mid twenties is a good time to be learning these lessons, um, how culture touches everything. And sometimes the ego that you bring with yourself can be invisible in your own culture. And then suddenly you realize that uh, the ego that's sort of getting in the way of you seeing the world correctly, you know, you just can't hold it up in the same way in a country like Korea that's so much different than your own. And not only do you understand a place like Korea better, but you understand yourself better. And it's, and it's really humbling. And so I think one of the best gifts of travel, maybe something that doesn't always show up in travel Instagram where everybody looks perfect, is that humbling moment when you go to another country and you're a little bit humiliated, but in a way that makes you a, a better and broader person. I found that very interesting as well, how kind of the Eastern Asian cultures have this sense of community and that you're a part of something. And in the West, we have this John Wayne cowboy individualism, that it's it's all up to you. You have the volition to take charge, the action. And I was reading a old copy of The Art of War, and it had a 30 or 40-page introduction, and it goes back to Aristotle and Plato and to Confucius and to kind of the genesis of how West, as Westerners we see ourselves and that we are the prime mover and the moved, you know, like the the action and the effect. And in in Asian cultures, that it's really all intertwined and it's all about relationships. And, and I think you really see that when you go to Japan and China and Korea. And, you know, in some ways it's a beautiful thing and it takes a little bit of this this pressure that it's up to us to change everything and do everything and it and it's humbling because there's so much we don't understand and we are also connected but yet growing up in the United States and especially growing up as an athlete in the United States you're taught that every detail can be planned it's up to you to to take charge and it's it's a lot of weight you know for one's shoulders and it's just it's interesting that that's not the only way to see the world. And I think that certainly is one of the biggest lessons that I've learned through reading and through travel. Um, and it's interesting that that was also something that you came across early in your travel career. Yeah. And I think it's something that 
um, it's not something that only, it's not only something that exists in East Asia. It exists here too, and sometimes we forget it. And I think maybe as an athlete, you're maybe in a better position to think about people like family members who make a lot of sacrifices for your success. And I think a lot of in this culture that celebrates the individual, it can be it can be really hard to remember how communal our individualist successes are, you know. Um, For my own podcast, I interviewed an old high school classmate of mine. I usually don't interview people I know before, but like the most impressive academic person of my graduating class in in Wichita, Kansas, was this girl named Kay. Um, And when I, and she's now a university administrator, and when I asked her about her success, she didn't tell that normal American story about all the hard work she did. She talked about her her grandfather, who joined the army in 1942, and because he was African American, couldn't get on the bus in Virginia, and decided that at that time he was going to win this situation. And in a way, he won by being the grandfather of Kay. You know that we forget the sacrifices that go before us, and this guy that could have gotten angry in 1942 and been bitter, just decided to defeat the situation. And part of defeating that situation was being the grandfather of the most impressive person I knew in my class growing up, who's now a very successful American. And I think if we're all honest, all of our individualist stories will involve people, maybe not so dramatically as Kay's grandfather, but as family members, community members, other people who feed into our lives. And you know, one, I moved back to Kansas after I lived overseas for seven years, and I live next door to my parents now. And one of my inspirations for that was that everywhere in the world, people acknowledge the importance of family. That in Vietnam, families will band their money together and buy property. Um, In southeastern Africa, people will forego professional opportunities so they can be close to their family and support their aging grandparents. And so travel was a lesson that helped me see my own family in my own individualist successes in a way that I might not have otherwise. That's that's very well said. I want to transition to a a few questions as we wrap up. First of all, the way that you've embraced serendipity and travel has led to some pretty incredible opportunities. You teach writing and travel writing every summer in Paris. You, I think, were a writer in residence at University of Pennsylvania, and now you're also teaching nonfiction at Yale. It seems like kind of embracing the unknown has led to some pretty interesting life opportunities for you. Yeah, I don't teach at Yale anymore, but I, I taught there for two years. Um, like um, Wikipedia hasn't caught up to my to my career. It never does. It never <laughs> <Right>. does. <laughs> but no, but no, literally, it's. Um, I did not get invited to teach at Yale because I had any connection to Yale. But but somebody who was teaching at Yale was had read my work, you know, and was teaching my work, and uh, so it was just a bunch of serendipitous opportunities. You know, it's funny when I was in high school, I, I remember Yale a Yale table was at the college fair, and I remember feeling sorry for this person who had to come to Kansas to talk about Yale because who from Kansas would go to Yale? Well, then years later, I ended up teaching there, so that was such a gratifying thing. Um, and it actually travel led to that. You know, that there's there's some resume worthy things that you can that are a result of travel, and there's those sunset uh, moments that come from travel. But Yale was certainly a resume moment that came from that. I li- I really like that evolution because I think we, again, that idea of individualism and planning and having these tracks that we think our lives should follow, and to just be, I guess open enough and humble enough that to make room for serendipity. And I think you've, you've certainly 
done that. I, I wanted to know what's on your bucket list for travel. Like, what country are you dying to go to? Well, the first thing that popped in, you know, you asked that question, and if if we have five hours, I'll probably end up ex- explaining every country in the world. <laughs> but what popped in my head was Antarctica, which isn't even technically a country, but it's just a part of the world that I've dreamed about since I was very young. And I think sometimes it's good to honor the dreams of your childhood because there's a reason why they're there. And I've been to a lot of places that I dreamt about as a kid, but not yet Antarctica. I've been to the Falkland Islands, actually. I've seen penguins, which don't smell good, by the way. If anybody's wondering, penguins are very adorable, but they don't smell good. Um, but I'd love to go down to the bottom of the, the world to Antarctica and experience that a little bit more. You know, I'd love to go to Central Asia and Central Africa. But again, we don't have six hours, so I don't want to explain everything there. You know, when I was a kid, the concept of bucket list didn't even exist. You know, yet I had one. Yet I knew that there were some places that I wanted to go to. And as I say in the book Vagabonding, that's a great place to start. Even if you can't explain why you want to go to a place, if you've been dreaming about it, then maybe you should go there. And I've said before that, you know, the bucket list isn't really about what's on it. The bucket list is what gets you out the door, what what gets you to the far side of the world. And you might have dreamt about going to Machu Picchu in Peru, but then maybe once you get there and have an amazing time, you go on the other side of the Andes into the Amazon Valley and you find an experience that you had no idea was there. And suddenly that's why you're there. It wasn't on your bucket list, but it's just as amazing as anything that was. So regardless of what's on your bucket list, the things that you'll find once that helps you open the door and leave home are just unimaginably awesome. Well, that brings me to my last question. I ask everyone, and it's what is your Olympic moment? And the way that I describe this, because we have Olympians, Paralympians, and then all sorts of other characters and uh, on the podcast, and it's just this moment that that transcends, that stands out in your mind, perhaps something that a lifetime led up to, or just kind of a coming to moment that you'll you'll never forget. Yeah, well, just as an aside, like when I was 13, I was in home ec class in junior high, and I loved the Olympics so much that I sewed a bunch of flags of all the Winter Olympic countries. Um, So I've always sort of been an Olympics, a literal Olympics nerd. But if if there was to be an Olympics moment from my travels, it would probably be that first moment when I realized that I had done it. Um, And for me, it was this moment in Bangkok, Thailand, when I had saved my money and I knew that I could probably travel for a year, it ended up being two and a half years. And at the end of that time, I wrote Vagabonding. And I was just sitting on a cafe in a nameless street, just sort of smelling that tropical air. And I realized that I'd done it. You know, I just felt so grateful. Again, for this very simple moment, um, it wasn't the top level of the metal stand, but for me it was because I was having a very simple breakfast. I had enough money to make the next year of my life super interesting. And I guess I had just, I had done something that my 17-year-old self didn't even think was possible. And there I was 29 years old and I was doing it. And I had no idea what was going to happen next in the best way possible. And that was that was my Olympic moment, I think. I love that. I think your story and your outlook is so inspiring, especially for this generation that, you know, we've got so much coming at us. There's so many expectations and we're we're trying to find 
this sense of meaning and and you know, already in a lot of ways realizing that material possessions are not holding the key the way that they were promised to in, in the 50s and 60s, and we're, we're rebelling a little bit against that. So, you know, everything about experience, time, wealth, travel, I encourage everyone to read Vagabonding. And where can people follow you if they want to know more about your story and what you're up to? Well, it sounds like Instagram is good, except for when I'm not posting to Instagram. <laughs> so, so maybe the best place to find me is rolfpotts.com, old school author website. It connects to all my social media accounts, but it's a great way to go to a deep dive into um, podcasts and articles about travel and my books and my social media accounts. So it's a great square one if you want to learn more about me. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for making the time today. I know that our listeners will love your perspective and hopefully you will inspire a few people to let go, pack a a small bag and and have the adventure of their life. Awesome. Well, good luck in the journey to everyone whenever it begins. Please subscribe to Sasha Sessions wherever you get your podcasts. You can find new episodes every Monday. Produced by Bigfoot Music and Sound in New York City.